0: Strength comes when you remember that you have a divine nature, an inheritance of infinite worth. At times like that, just look up and leave.
1: It's up to us to go down the road that leads us back home. It's up to
2: We thank thee, O God, for a prophet. Oh, man, I love President Nelson. You do have a divine nature and an inheritance of infinite worth awaiting you in our Heavenly Parents' eternal kingdom. It's the last lesson, the last thought habit, Brent, on the Worth of Souls podcast. I'm Andrea. And I'm Brent. I I feel a little bit emotional, actually, about being finished with the lessons at this point. We commend you just so much for making it through to the end and following through. The heavens are cheering you on. We absolutely know that. Even after 20 years of learning and applying this knowledge, oh man, the more I learn and apply, the more I realize how much I just don't know. (laughs) And the more I realize how much I don't know, the more reverence I have for Heavenly Father and the more humble I become and truly understand, like King Benjamin said, how dependent I really am on my heavenly parents and Jesus Christ.
3: Last time, we talked about giving our all to the Lord by following the great first commandment to love him with all our heart, mind, and soul. What did you put on the altar for him for the last couple of days? How And how did that affect your spiritual life and your spiritual focus? We'd love to hear about the experiences that you had. Share anything that you feel inspired to share with us on, on our Facebook or Instagram. We'd love to hear it. A friend of ours, Mark, shared some thoughts with us about a time in his life when he was inspired to put his all on the altar. Quote, my wife was struggling with her testimony. Neither of us can say how it started, but it went on for a couple of years She wouldn't reject family scripture study and family prayer, but she wasn't invested in them. She looked for opportunities not to go to church, and we never made it to the temple together anymore. Something always got in the way. Her brother and his wife had left the church a few years earlier, and she would mention how carefree their lifestyle seemed and that she was a little bit jealous when they would go partying. Not only could I feel she was losing her testimony, but our relationship was falling apart also. I prayed and fasted for her to have whatever experience was necessary to find her testimony again. One day the the Spirit whispered to me, I'll work on her. What sacrifices can you make? I hadn't ever thought about my sacrifices being able to have impact on her. But as I gave myself some place to think about that over the next few days, I came up with specific things I could put on the altar and made a commitment to the Lord that I would follow through out of my love for Him. I committed to go to the temple every week. I committed to do a specific service for her every day. I committed to find five things every day she was doing right. I committed to find joy every day and doubt not, fear not. As the weeks passed, I started to see small improvements. She started singing the hymns casually around the house again. She started sharing thoughts in our family scripture discussions again. Then the big one came. One day she told me she wanted to go with me to the temple. My heart leapt with joy. I can't point to any specific Alma the Younger type experience that caused her to turn the corner, but I can testify that the light of the gospel is back in her eyes again. Obviously, she used her agency to choose to get back into the light. But the Spirit also witnesses to me that my love for her and the sacrifices I chose to make were a contributing factor. The Lord brought his pure love back into our home, close quote.
2: I really appreciate that Mark would share such an important experience with us and just the imagery of what we talked about last time with placing placing a sacrifice on the altar before the Lord. I, I just really appreciated that. Today is thought habit number 12, forgiving and judging righteously help me progress. There's a good reason why this is the last thought habit. If you do not practice any of the other thought habits, then it's going to be very easy for you to interpret forgiveness and judgment in a temporal natural man way. But... When we practice the thought habits, when we know that we have a perfect brightness of hope because of feeling the Holy Ghost daily, when we know how to separate our worth from our performance and how to separate other people's worth from their performance, and then dedicating all of our works to the Lord, when we use enticements for spiritual growth and see adversities in the Lord's way, when we keep our power of agency and don't try to take over other people's agency, and When we understand the joy of daily repentance and putting our all our sacrifices on the altar before the Lord in love and trust for him, then forgiveness and judgment can be viewed with an eye single to the glory of God instead of a temporal way or a natural man way or with any interpretations of men.
3: When we think of doing our best to obey the first great commandment, one of the tools Heavenly Father has given us to stay in that focus is the gift of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the way to get unhooked from other people's performance so you can feel God's love and have the Spirit with you. You cannot feel God's love if the feelings from other people's performance are dominant within your temple or if the feelings you have about your own performance are dominant. In Matthew, the Lord tells us that the law of forgiveness also coordinates side by side with the law of sowing and reaping. It says in Matthew 6, quote, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. President Nelson understands the importance of what we put out is what we also get back, the law of sowing and reaping, In a recent general conference, he spoke with us about spiritual momentum and mentioned this about forgiveness. He said, I repeat my call to end
0: the conflicts in your life, exercise the humility, courage and strength required both to forgive and to seek forgiveness as you do so. I promise a personal
3: peace and a burst of spiritual momentum. The power of the Atonement Jesus Christ cannot be released on my behalf if I don't live the law of forgiveness. And this also includes forgiving myself. Elder Uchtdorf mentioned forgiving ourselves as well in his talk, The Merciful Obtain Mercy. He said this,
1: When the Lord requires that we forgive all men, that includes, of course, forgiving ourselves. Sometimes of all the people in the world, the one is the hardest to forgive, as well as perhaps the one who is most in need of our forgiveness is the person looking back at us in the mirror.
2: If you are working at forgiving the person looking back at you from the mirror, then we hope and we pray that this lesson can help you. We have a friend, Jennifer, uh, share. He, she shared with us a situation that happened to her that was very hurtful. And it caused her to really dig deep and understand the power of forgiveness for herself and for other people. She had previously been introduced to the thought habits of Jesus Christ, and before this situation happened, she was actively working on these skills. She told us this: quote: I have put a lot of effort into doing my best to have good relationships with my in-laws. I have three sisters-in-law on my husband's side, and they are all very close. At family gatherings, I've put special effort into trying to be as inclusive as possible while being mindful of giving them space. I thought our relationships were good and pretty solid after a couple of years. But then one family dinner, I accidentally picked up someone else's phone that looked like mine. In a moment, I could see that there were text messages being exchanged about me and realized the phone I had picked up belonged to one of my sister's-in-law. In that moment, the second of picking up the phone and glancing at it, I was able to see the conversation that had been happening. They were saying hurtful things about me. They said how irritating I was and how much they couldn't wait until I left. I put the phone down and just silently went to my husband and told him that we needed to gather our things and head out. Over the next 24 hours, I cried and I mulled over what I had done wrong. I couldn't think of what I had ever done to cause them to dislike me so much. I had a problem. I was too codependent on what they thought of me. Then in prayer, the Lord reminded me to apply all the spiritually focused skills I had been working on. I had been in training for a moment like this. He admonished me in order to keep the spirit I needed to use everything that I had already learned in order to work through and understand this situation. I did not want to give them power over my happiness, my thoughts, and my actions, so I went to work, per se, spiritually. Over the next several days, whenever I had a flash in my mind of picking up the phone, I pictured myself giving the phone to Jesus and asking Him to take it and all the emotions that surrounded it. Anytime the enticements of a feeling came up from what happened, I glorified God. I asked him to help me see the situation for what it was meant for, for my spiritual growth. I praised the Lord for the hurt that I was feeling. I pictured myself going to the garden and seeing what Christ went through for me, and I was willing to go through this for him. When I applied all of this that I had already learned, I found myself being able to forgive. Little by little, the hurt left me. As I kept envisioning in my mind giving that moment and my pain to the Savior, each time the hurt and the pain got less and less. And the amazing thing is, is that the Lord opened my mind and heart to understand my sisters-in-law on a totally different level. I started to feel sorry for them and knew that the only reason they were treating me that way is because it was, it was a reflection of what was going on inside their temple. It caused me to feel empathy for them and to love them in a completely different way without any more codependency on how they felt about me. As I went through the process of forgiveness, I became free. Jesus took the burden off my shoulders, and I can truly say that I know the whole situation was meant for my spiritual growth. The Lord knew I was going to pick up that phone. He could have inspired me not to. But he allowed me to have the situation in order to use it to become closer to him. Close quote. The visual that Jennifer mentions in this story about giving that painful moment to Jesus, that is such a powerful exercise that the Spirit taught her. And because she used this whole situation for her spiritual growth, she was set free because of it. That's a gift of forgiveness. If she had chosen to try to handle the situation in a temporal world natural man way, she would have tried. She would have done a few things like tried to figure out a way to get even with them or to make them feel the same pain that she felt or accuse and confront them in front of the whole family. There are so many different ways to follow the natural man program, but she chose to do it the the Savior's way. And a huge reason she had the spiritual capability of doing that is because she had already been practicing trying to think as Christ thinks. She recognized that her sisters-in-law weren't the only ones with a problem, that she had a problem of being codependent on them instead of being dependent on the Lord. The Spirit helped her to know how she could use the eye of faith to transcend the hurt feelings. For her, it was visualizing giving the phone to Jesus. And as she did that, she was able to find forgiveness. She got the beam out of her own eye and was able to see the situation clearly and spiritually progress because of it.
3: Jesus tells us very specifically about forgiveness in Matthew chapter 5. He says this, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your father which is in heaven, for he maketh his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same?
2: That scripture it brings up actually a memory that I have um really perfectly there's a friend of mine that shared something with me about this it was a couple of days after my mom had passed away and Rosie she's a lifelong friend came over and she told me a, a story that i didn't know about my mom she in essence said this i was in high school and there was a boy that i really liked I ended up telling my friend about how much I liked him, and then a few days later, guess who the boy was dating? My friend. I was so hurt, and I felt betrayed. I came over to your house, and I was talking to your mom about it. She listened to everything that I had to say, and then she asked me, Rosie, have you prayed for her? I told her, well, yeah, Paula, I've prayed for her. I prayed that I can forgive her. I've prayed that I can see her how the Lord sees her. And then your mom interrupted me and said this. No, Rosie, you're praying for yourself. I want to know if you've prayed for her. Have you prayed for her to do well on her tests? Have you prayed for her to find success in school? Have you prayed for her to do well in her job? You need to pray for her. That answer was a little shocking that I got from your mom, and I decided that I might as well put it to the test. So I started praying for this girl who had hurt me so much. And you know what happened? Within days, all of my pain was dissolved. The Lord literally took it away from me when I prayed for my enemy. And even now, 25 years later, I still use that advice your mom gave me whenever I have hard feelings toward anybody else. And it works every time. Close quote. I loved it when she shared this with me because it is so my mom to say something like that. And it is true that praying for our enemies, it does work every time. And there's a very specific reason why. It's because Whenever we need to forgive someone, we've got to recognize first that we have a problem. The problem is, is that we've given our power of emotion to someone else's poor performance. And when we give power to someone else to control our temples, we have got to know that the first thing we must do in that to solve our problem is to draw closer to God. Well, well but, and, yeah,
3: and, and, But when you say that in words, it sounds so easy. But in the realities of life, when those big emotions come along and we have to forgive someone, it is much more difficult because those negative emotions that come into our temples because of other people's performances, they're genuine. They, they actually have hurt us. And those, those can become dominant over the love we have for God in those really trying moments. So let's look at a real life example of how hard that can be, but that it is possible. You may remember a tragedy that happened in a small Pennsylvania town back in 2006. A lone gunman opened fire inside a one-room schoolhouse in a tiny Amish community, killing five girls and wounding five others, and then ultimately taking his own life. The shooter left behind a wife and three children, and a wake of tragedy through an entire town. I remember hearing about this in the news and worrying for the families who had lost their children and how devastated it must be to have something like this happen in their peaceful town. And I'll admit that not once did I think of the gunman, except with disdain that someone could carry out such an evil act. But how did the Amish community respond? On the day of the shooting... A grandfather of one of the murdered Amish girls was heard warning some, girl, some young relatives not to hate the killer, saying, We must not think evil of this man. Another Amish father noted, He had a mother and a wife and a soul, and now he's standing before a just God. A man close to the members of the community explained, I don't think there's anybody here that wants to do anything but forgive and not only reach out to those who have suffered a loss in that way, but to reach out to the family of the man who committed these acts as well. A spokesman from the family of the gunman said, An Amish neighbor comforted the family of the shooter for hours after the shooting and extended forgiveness to them. Amish community members visited and comforted his widow, parents, and parents-in-law. One Amish man held the shooter's sobbing father in his arms, reportedly for as long as an hour, to comfort him. And many members of the community attended the shooter's funeral to help to comfort the grieving family. President Faust spoke of these Amish people in his talk, The Healing Power of Forgiveness. This was one of the last talks he gave in conference, and he was so weak that a lot of the talk is difficult to discern. So I will be reading his words, and I hope that as I do you can appreciate that with his lifetime of experience as a minister in Christ's kingdom, this is one of the last messages he chose to give to the saints. After describing the tragic events in that that community and the community's response to it, he said this, How could the whole Amish group manifest such an expression of forgiveness? It was because of their faith in God and trust in His word which is part of their inner beings. They see themselves as disciples of Christ and want to follow His example. Hearing of this tragedy, many people sent money to the Amish to pay for the health care of the five surviving girls and for the burial expenses of the five who were killed. As a further demonstration of their discipleship, the Amish decided to share some of the money with the widow of the gunman and her three children because they too were victims of this terrible tragedy. Close quote. Forgiveness is possible, even in the face of real tragedy, when we choose to be disciples of Jesus Christ and allow the love of God to be dominant in our hearts. And forgiveness brings with it a gift. It is the gift of becoming unhooked from other people's performance so you can feel God's love and have the Spirit with you. Rosie, Jennifer, Jennifer, and the Amish community all received the gift of emotional freedom that only forgiveness brings.
2: There's an evolution that happens with forgiveness every single time. First, when we want to forgive someone in the Lord's way, the Spirit will help us to understand that the person that hurt me doesn't see themselves the way that God sees them. And because of that, they aren't, they aren't seeing me for who I am either. When someone doesn't know who they are, a child of God born and reared in the courts of glory on high, then they hurt other people around them. People only treat me according to what is going on within their own temples. And if they are hurting inside, then they hurt people on the outside. The Spirit can help us to understand what's happening within someone else's temple if we will look past their actions and listen to the still, small voice. After going through this and understanding someone, then the Holy Ghost does something amazing. He helps to open my eyes to the hurt that they're feeling inside their temple in a way that we actually can feel empathy, that we feel feel sorry for them. As empathy for them sets in at that point, I have the emotional space within me to pray for them and that they will come to know the truth about themselves. And after feeling this type of empathy, the beam is removed from my own eye. And now I can begin to see them as Christ sees them. And now that I'm spiritually focused through forgiveness I can feel Christ's perfect love for me as well. Jennifer mentioned actually in her example that the Spirit taught her and took her through all of those different steps. And she mentioned a really powerful exercise of visualizing giving her pain to Jesus. I've done this in my life as well. There have been many moments of deep anguish that have been caused by people that are extremely close to me. And the way when I look back at it, the way I was able to transcend the hurt was by putting all of my pain in a bag. And then I gave that bag to Jesus and asked him to carry it for me. Every single time I do this exercise, this eye of faith exercise, without fail, I then have the eyes to see the other person as God sees them, and I start to gain empathy, understanding, and sorrow for them, and then eventually deep love sets in as well. I invite you to do this same exercise using the eye of faith. If you're experiencing something hurtful and you're needing to forgive, and you if you're having a hard time, close your eyes and just Picture yourself grabbing that pain, taking the hurt, everything and everyone involved in the situation and put it into a bag or a box or a suitcase or whatever else comes to your mind and then bundle it up and hand it over to Jesus and see him take it from you and see him put it on his back so that you can then become free of it.
3: So that your burdens can become light. Yeah. Because his way is easier every time. So as we choose to go through this process of forgiving, we will first come to understand the person who has hurt us, which will lead us to feeling empathy for them and a desire to pray for them, which in turn opens us up to feel the love God feels for them and for us. However, if we choose not to go through this process of forgiveness and instead hold on to those hurt feelings or betrayal, we will allow that person who has hurt us to become our God, small g. Our feelings and emotions become dependent on their actions and their feelings towards us. We give away our power and we become their slave. Elder Bednar is a huge advocate of using our agency for our benefit. In a recent talk, he said this.
0: However, it ultimately is impossible for another person to offend you or to offend me. Indeed, believing that another person offended us is fundamentally false. To be offended is a choice we make. It is not a condition inflicted or imposed upon us by someone or something else. Through the strengthening power of the Atonement of Jesus Christ, You and I can be blessed to avoid and triumph over offense. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them.
3: This is the same with us forgiving ourselves. We can become slaves to our own natural natural man responses when we never give our hurt and pain to the Savior. Some people feel like if they forgive someone, then they are letting that other person win. And I want to tell you right now, that is false in every way. We don't want anyone or anything to separate us from the love of God. And when we choose to keep our own hurt and hold on to our own pain and not give it to the Lord, then we separate ourselves from the love of God. And it's like Paul said to his letter in the Romans, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? When we give our hurt, our pain, and our hard situations and everything to the Savior, that is the action of forgiveness. And then we are able to unhook from that pain and hurt and transcend it within becoming spiritually focused.
2: Well, an opposition comes in many different shapes and sizes. What if you are a victim of a terrible act of violence or abuse Talking about this subject, I want to actually talk about one of my very close friends. Um, She was raped several years ago. And as she was processing with me about it one day, she was just agonizing over so many emotions that she had felt as she was going through this forgiveness process, which included blaming herself. But then As we were talking through it, she started saying things that were really important for her spiritual growth. And in essence, this is what she said Andrea, the more I focus on the person who raped me and the physical hurt and the emotional hurt, the more angry and bitter I become. But the opposite is also true. The more I focus on Jesus. The more peaceful I become, the more I focus on the atonement and what Christ went through for me, that he even felt this pain and this hurt that I've gone through. The more I use my thoughts and prayers to shift to him, then I have the spirit with me and I feel forgiveness. Forgiveness for me has equaled giving all my hurt to Jesus, and in that I can become free." The amazing thing is that the Spirit also taught her and has been teaching her how to use the eye of faith exercise that I described earlier and that Jennifer mentioned as well of taking all the hurt and pain from the experience and placing it into a bag or whatever fits your visualization and giving it to Jesus to carry. When she told me what she was emotionally practicing with giving her all to the Savior, My heart, it just exploded with love and admiration for her. I just, whenever anybody is a victim to violence and abuse and they work through this forgiveness, my admiration is just through the roof for them. She recounted in this same conversation how the evolution of forgiveness was happening for her. And the time that it's taken for her to process everything, it has lasted several years. And for those of you who have experienced the same thing, time is is your ally inside of this process. But the results are the same. The results of God effectively planting in her heart the way for her to become spiritually focused and gaining her hope again— and she she even can see the way that the Spirit is with her and how she knows everything she went through is something that the Lord is using to help other people because she's been able to counsel with many others who have had the same thing happen to them. And any time that she feels Satan try to bring up the anger or the hurt, she puts all of those feelings that she feels into that forgiveness bag. And pictures herself giving it to Jesus again and again and again.
3: Anytime there's a situation of abuse, it does require a great deal of mental exertion and time in order to unhook from the abuser. And to release ourselves from feelings of blame as well. Like Andrea's friend who blamed herself and had to work through those feelings as part of her forgiveness process. All solutions Like we've talked about from the beginning, all solutions are found in the spiritual world. So as an abused person spends more time in a spiritual focus, they will over time find it easier to feel God's love, especially as they, what we do, what we talked about, go to the garden and give the bag of hurt and pain to Christ. The pain from what happened will be overshadowed by God's love. This causes their love of God to grow and releases them. The abuser then stops being the center of their thoughts and their emotions. The pain of the abuse shrinks as their love for God grows and they are healed by God's love. That love allows forgiveness to happen. Elder Holland, in his beautiful talk, The Ministry of Reconciliation, told us this.
4: Forgive and you shall be forgiven, Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and in our day... I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. It is, however, important for some of you living in real anguish to note what he did not say. He did not say, you're not allowed to feel true pain or real sorrow from the shattering experiences you've had at the hand of another. Nor did he say, in order to forgive fully, you have to reenter a toxic relationship or return to an abusive, destructive circumstance. But notwithstanding even the most terrible offenses that might come to us, we can rise above our pain only when we put our feet onto the path of true healing. That path is the forgiving one walked by Jesus of Nazareth, who calls out to each of us, Come, follow
3: me. We can rise above our pain no matter what it is, because our Savior, Jesus Christ, He is healing. He is our healing power, and it is real. A discussion about forgiveness is not complete without addressing the doctrine of righteous judgment. So let's jump into that for a minute. What does the Lord mean when He tells us to judge righteously? We can always tell If we are doing this right, if we are judging righteously, because we will be able to see that it is helping me progress. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 11, verse 12, it tells us, And now, verily, verily, I say unto thee, put your trust in that Spirit which leadeth to do good, yea, to do justly, to walk humbly, to judge righteously, and this is my Spirit. The only way to judge righteously is by having the companionship of the Holy Ghost. And you will find that when you practice righteous judgment, it is based on evaluating situations, not judging people.
2: Not permanently judging people.
3: Because if we judge anything or anyone according to natural man thought habits instead of Jesus Christ-centered thought habits, then we will always go to condemnation instead of righteous judgment.
2: For many years, whenever the subject of judgment comes up, especially righteous judgment, my dad will tell this story. It's something that happened to him many years ago when he was a young father. Quote, I was aware of a situation with several women, all of whom are sisters who were working through abuse that I was told had happened at the hand of their father. I was aware of it because a few times I was asked to help give them blessings as they were trying to overcome evil spirits that were attacking them. One day, I went, when I went to the temple, I sat down and I got comfortable and waited for the session to start. This was back in the day when the temple ceremony was acted out instead of using film. As the session started, the man who came out to portray Elohim was the father of these women. I immediately went into major judgment. I went into literal thoughts of, you rotten SOB! <laughs> These are my dad's words, not mine. (laughs) What are you doing here? How are you possibly portraying Heavenly Father without the Lord striking you dead? I was getting close to the point of standing up in the creation room and accusing him in front of the whole audience in order to call down what I thought was righteous indignation. As I was having these horrible thoughts about this man, the voice of the Lord came to me. I have heard the voice of the Lord a few times in my life. Every time before, this voice I heard has been clear, loving, and soft, but not this time. The voice I heard in the temple that day was stern and definitely a rebuke. I heard these words. Who are you to judge? Judgment is mine. Don't judge another person ever. It is not your place to judge any man or any woman at any time. Judgment is reserved only for me. I have never felt as chastised as I did in that moment. If I could have crawled down and hidden under the seats in the temple, I would have. It was such a strong voice. I looked around the room to see if anyone else had heard the Lord rebuke me that way because of how loud it was to me. A few months later, I found out why the Lord had rebuked me so strongly and given me this wonderful gift of understanding the principle of not judging unrighteously. It came out that the father of these girls had never abused them. There was abuse that had happened, but it was at the hand of an uncle, not their father. The therapist that they were had been going to had implanted memories into their brain about their father. Legally, it eventually came to light that the therapist had done the same thing with many different clients. When I found out what happened and remembered the experience I had in the temple that day, I'm so grateful the Lord stopped me from accusing that man and taught me this valuable lesson. Close quote. This this is a perfect portrayal of this point. It is never our place to make final judgments about anyone, any person, That is reserved for the Lord completely. We are to forgive all men, period. That is what the Savior has commanded us to do. Righteous judgment is to be made about situations, and it always helps me to progress. Even if the voice of the Lord hadn't come to my dad, how could he have known that he was out of place by what he was doing? Because the judgments he were making were not helping him progress, and they were out of his stewardship. The judgments he was making were condemning another person. And when condemnation comes, that is always the key to know if we have stepped over that boundary that the Lord has given to
3: us. President Oaks gave a great talk at a BYU devotional called Judge Not and Judging, which is perfect since he was a judge. He mentions at the beginning of his talk that his motivation for the subject of the talk is a puzzlement that he was feeling about the seeming contradiction in the scriptures when we are told to, quote, judge not. But then in other places in the scriptures, we are told to, quote, judge righteously and even told how we must do that.
2: I love Elder Oaks's (laughs) – his president Oaks. Now his mind inside of this because of how distinct he is with all of this.
3: Such a clear understanding yes. of right and wrong. I love that man. He then spoke about how important it is to make the distinction between what he called intermediate judgment based on righteous principles of the gospel, but leave the quote final judgment to the Lord. He noted that even Christ during his lifetime did not perform final judgment. Like when he met the woman who had been taken in adultery, he allowed her more time to go and sin no more. Then, in his talk, Elder, Qu- Elder Oaks said this,
0: In contrast to forbidding mortals to make final judgments, the scriptures require mortals to make what I will call intermediate judgments. Let us consider some principles or ingredients that lead to a righteous judgment. First of all, a righteous judgment must, by definition, be intermediate. It will refrain from declaring that a person has been assured of exaltation or from dismissing a person as being irrevocably bound for hellfire. Second, a righteous judgment will be guided by the Spirit of the Lord, not by anger, revenge, jealousy, or self-interest. Third. To be righteous, an intermediate judgment must be within our stewardship. We should not presume to exercise and act upon judgments that are outside our personal responsibilities. A fourth principle of a righteous intermediate judgment of a person is that we should, if possible, refrain from judging until we have an adequate knowledge of the facts. A fifth principle of a righteous intermediate judgment is that whenever possible, we will refrain from judging people and only judge
3: situations. The rest of this talk is so good. He really dives into the importance of making these intermediate judgments and how we can't do it without the companionship of the Spirit. Please take some time to read this in its fullness.
2: Well, and I loved reading this too because it gave me permission to have the spiritual confidence in knowing that I do need to participate in intermediate
3: judgments. Exactly. And trust the gift of discernment that so many of us as members of the church have through the Holy Ghost. Exactly. I believe that one of the biggest reasons we need to learn how to make righteous intermediate judgments is because of how pervasive it has become in our culture to simply dismiss horrible behaviors and situations created around us with the excuse of, oh, well, it's not for me to judge. I am here to tell you that that is an outright lie of the adversary. The Lord has told us explicitly that we are to righteously judge intermittently, as Elder Oaks put it. Not other people's final place in Heavenly Father's kingdom, but what they are doing and whether or not it has a potentially dangerous impact on you or on your family is something that you can absolutely evaluate and judge. And it is Christ-like to use the Spirit as your teacher to righteously judge.
2: And to righteously judge the situations and this commandment to judge righteously, it's also in force when we judge our past, when we go into judgments about ourself. As we go throughout life, we're constantly gathering experiences. And within the gathering of all of those things, we keep adding more light to our wisdom and more knowledge to what we currently have. If you're 17 years old and listening to this, first of all, congratulations. That's amazing. <laughs> but you had more light than you had when you were five. And if you're 30 years old, the light you have now is much greater than when you were 17. And if you're 60, the light you have is far surpassed the light that you had when you were 30.
3: Well, and that's that's one of the reasons why I love the idea that the Lord is an old man. There, there's a beautiful story that I heard years ago of a state presidency that was made up of a very mem- seasoned member of the church with plenty of gray hairs and whose two counselors that were both young men in their 30s. They were participating in a disciplinary council together with a stake high council and they had retired to their office to deliberate after they had heard from the accused brother. The stake president asked the opinion of his counselors who both thought that the brother should be cut loose, excommunicated for the gravity of his sins. The stake president thought for a moment on their comments and listened to the inspiration that he was receiving. He smiled and said, Brethren, I am so grateful that the Lord is an old man. He knows this brother's heart and has told me that what this brother needs is to feel his father's mercy for him. There is great wisdom that comes with age and life experience.
2: Yeah, I lo- when Brent told me that story, I just, I loved it too. And we, we need to remember that <laughs> inside of making judgments about our past. If I make a judgment of my past based on my present light, I will always condemn myself. But righteous judgment produces progression, like we've talked about. When I judge my past righteously, the Holy Ghost will help me to remember the situation according to the light I had at the time. I will be able to remember my past mistakes without going into vain regret and darkness.
3: Well, that reminds me of a conversation that I recently had with my mom. She was a single mother from the time I was quite young, and she had the task of raising five children and at the same time working multiple jobs to be able to support her family. Because of this, she was really absent in many ways as a mother. We didn't have a lot of structure in my house. We watched an obscene amount of mainstream television. And the house the house was almost always a total disaster. There were so many things that were left undone within her mothering because of her circumstances. And much to her dismay, it's not what she planned on. It's just what life dealt her. And she simply just didn't have the bandwidth to try and manage everything on her own. Getting us to just pray together as a family was such an enormous task. Forget about scripture study and planned out family home evenings and structured time together. Decades later now, she has a lot of pain come up within her temple because of everything that she feels like she missed while she was doing those necessary things to put food on our table. And for several years, she has had difficulty forgiving herself because she was judging her past based on the current light that she has now. So that parenting experience was not a positive one for her as she looked on it in her past. And thankfully, through the, these recent discussions that we have had together, she has had many spiritual strides and has gone through the mental and emotional work to forgive herself and give everything that happened in her past with her family to the Lord. Elder Uchtdorf addressed the importance of forgiving ourselves in his talk, Point of Safe Return. He said this,
1: Satan will try to make us believe that our sins are not forgiven because we can remember them. Satan is a liar. He tries to blur our vision and lead us away from the path of repentance and forgiveness. God did not promise that we would not remember our sins. Remembering will help us avoid making the same mistakes again. But if we stay true and faithful, the memory of our sins will be softened over time.
2: We have, all of us, made mistakes that we can beat ourselves up about, especially with parenting. That's the mother load. <laughs> when we feel like of things that we can go back and redo... But that it's just not the Lord's way. His atonement covers it all. And as I repent, daily repent, and seek to walk in the light now, I am clean and forgiven. And it gives me the ability to focus on serving the Lord, especially if I have a wayward child. If I'm constantly going to darkness because of comparing my past with the current light I have now, I cannot be an instrument in His hands. But when I put myself in the light and choose to focus spiritually, there's value in all of our experiences. And if we're choosing to look at our past mistakes with that wisdom, we can rejoice. Not that we made a mistake, but that the atonement has paid for it in full, and I am a better person for having had those experiences, And I also get to acknowledge that my present light is made up of the good and the bad choices that I've made. All of those choices in the past have given me greater wisdom to enjoy the day and progress spiritually. Remember, please, when you look at your past, to do so through the lens of the light that you had then. The Holy Ghost is the only one that can help you do that. Not by the light that you have now so that you don't go into self-condemnation and vain regrets. And really, this is a concept that is the exact same with our children. We cannot judge our children based on our current light. It will never work. We have to seek the Spirit's help to understand the light our children currently have. Elder Holland, he got really personal about something that happened in his family with his son when he was a young father. I really appreciated this story. He tells us about how he got home from a stressful day and he found out that his son, that was then five years old, had been disobedient to his wife. And Elder Holland very vulnerably (laughs) tells us that he lost it on his son. He got so mad at him and lectured him and sent him to his room. Then Afterwards, of course, like we all do, Elder Holland felt horrible, and he knew that he had made a terrible mistake. That night, he had a dream, and in the talk, within the clasp of your arms, he tells us about this dream. He says this.
4: Finally, I did fall asleep and began to dream, which I seldom do. I dreamed Matt and I were packing two cars for a move. For some reason, his mother and baby sister were not present. As we finished, I turned to him and said, Okay, Matt, you drive one car, and I'll drive the other. This five-year-old very obediently crawled up onto the seat and tried to grasp the massive steering wheel. I walked over to the other car and started the motor. As I began to pull away, I looked to see how my son was doing. He was trying. Oh, how he was trying! He tried to reach the pedals, but he couldn't. He was also turning knobs and pushing buttons, trying to start the motor. He could scarcely be seen over the dashboard, but there, staring out at me again, were those same immense, tear-filled, beautiful brown eyes. As I pulled away, he cried out to me, Daddy, don't leave me. I don't know how to do it. I am too little. And I drove away. (sighs) A short time later... Driving down that desert road in my dream, how long I do not know, I suddenly realized in one stark, horrifying moment what I had done. I slammed my dream car to a stop, threw open the door, and started to run as fast as I could. I left car, keys, belongings, and all, and I ran. The pavement was so hot it burned my feet and tears— blinded my straining effort to see this child somewhere on the horizon. I kept running, praying, pleading to be forgiven and to find my boy safe and secure. As I rounded a curve, nearly ready to drop from physical and emotional exhaustion, I saw the unfamiliar car I had left Matt to drive. It was pulled carefully off to the side of the road, and he was laughing and playing nearby. An older man was with him, a stranger, playing and responding to his games. Matt saw me and cried out something like, Hi, Dad, we're having fun. Obviously, he had already forgiven and forgotten my terrible transgression against him. But I dreaded the older man's gaze, which followed my every move. I tried to say, Thank you, but his eyes were filled with sorrow and disappointment. I muttered an awkward apology, and the stranger said simply, You should not have left him alone to do this difficult thing it would not have been asked of you. With that, my dream ended, and I shot upright in my bed. My pillow was now stained with perspiration and tears. I threw off the covers and ran to the little metal camp cot that was my son's bed. There on my knees and through my tears, I cradled him in my arms and spoke to him while he slept. I told him that every dad makes mistakes, but that they don't mean to. I told him that it wasn't his fault that I had had a bad day. I told him that when boys are only 5 or 15, dads sometimes forget and think they're 50. I told him that I wanted him to be a small boy for a long, long time because all too soon he would grow up and be a man and wouldn't be playing on the floor with his toys when I came home. I told him that I loved him and his mother and his sister more than anything in this world. And that whatever challenges we had in life, we would face them together.
2: There is a lot of hope to be gained when we hear stories like this from the brethren. Because they had to learn line upon line just like everybody else does. And all of us as parents have made mistakes like this. We've tried to make our children accountable for more light than they currently have. It's easy to judge our children by the light that we currently have and forget that our light, it's come from years of making mistakes and the experience that results from all of those things. We just cannot do this to our kids. It takes a spiritual focus and honestly a lot of spiritual maturity to judge any situation with the light your child currently has rather than your own. But with the help of the Spirit, the Holy Ghost will help us to know what is going on inside of our children's souls. And then we will be able to make righteous judgments about the situations with our kids. And we will know that they're righteous judgments because they will help us progress. And they're going to help us progress in our relationships. That's always the key. You will know if you are judging righteously when it helps you progress.
3: All right, it's time for Alma's process of change. Since this is our last lesson, we're going to do Alma's process a little bit differently. We want you to decide what seed you want to plant and what seed you want to do an experiment with. What principle from this lesson do you feel like you need to get more rooted in your soul? Take some time to write down Each step of Alma's process and see what the Spirit will inspire you to search, ponder, and pray on from this lesson. If you need any suggestions, we still have provided the talks and scriptures and sample prayer and meditation as a companion to this lesson on our website. Congratulations! You have completed (laughs) all 12 thought habits of Jesus Christ. Your certificate will arrive in the mail in six to eight weeks or on Judgment Day, whichever comes first
2: judgment day whichever comes or hopefully <laughs> oh man that was awesome but in all seriousness <laughs> now that you've diligently learned and applied the thought habits of jesus christ we highly encourage you to share with others as the holy ghost tells you to do If there's someone that comes to your mind that you know could benefit from this, then share it. And you're more than welcome to use any of the material that we present in these lessons or on our website for creating your own study group. That can be really exciting because this is a lifelong pursuit to apply the thought habits. And we all need the support of each other to get these skills rooted within us. It's so valuable to talk and process and share and study together with a group. So please do so. We also want to remind you of the other resources of this material that are wonderful and amazing. You can find Brother Cox's seminar series and workbook on his website at nmiut.com.
3: That's nancymaryiut.com. Yeah, exactly.
2: And Peter Simona with his workbook and seminars at becomingchristcentered.com. There's always more to learn and these resources are just excellent. If you practice these 12 thought habits, one thought habit per week for 12 weeks, you will have a chance to study each of them four times in a year. And if you choose to do this, after 1 year you're going to be amazed by your spiritual progress.
3: You will find that as you look at the future time when you are able to walk back into the presence of your Savior, that you are becoming like him. Yeah. That's what this is all about.
2: All of the effort is worth it.
3: In closing, we want to draw your mind back to the very first thing that we shared in the first introductory lesson, that we were not born into some quasi Garden of Eden state. The Lord has placed us very deliberately In the midst of a great battle that has been raging since the preexistence, you are in a very real way in that battle every single day. And whether you put on the armor and pick up a weapon or you are just standing in the courtyard of the great and spacious building, allowing yourself to be riddled with the fiery darts of the adversary, the enemy of your soul is trying to destroy you every day. We pray that we have helped guide you through the study of the thought habits of Jesus Christ, but that the Holy Ghost has been your teacher throughout and taught you about the weapons of war necessary to join the winning side that is Christ's, to cross the bridge that he has built for you, holding tight to that iron rod, until you have reached that glorious home from whence we came, even our Father's eternal kingdom. As in Mormon's day, there will likely be very little, if any, peace as this wicked world moves closer to the second coming of our Savior. But we testify that as you choose to live these truths that we've discussed in these lessons, you can, like Mormon, be ready to participate in the glorious promises that so many ancient prophets have foretold, those events that will unfold and that will usher in the millennial reign of our Savior.
2: I want to add my testimony to that as well. And that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the fullness of the Lord here on the earth. The prophet Joseph Smith really did have that miraculous first vision that started the domino effect to everything being restored and continuing to be restored. The priesthood power is the power of God on the earth today. The atonement of my Savior, Jesus Christ. It is real, it is tangible, and it is active in my life and in your life and in everyone else's life. We testify that your soul is of infinite worth to him. He loves you and he wants you on his side now and forever And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
3: The Worth of Souls podcast is not an official publication of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If you have any questions about the doctrines discussed here, please visit the church's official website for clarification.